This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. Last Saturday, Reinhard Bonnke, a prominent German evangelist in Africa, passed away at the age of 79. Bonnke's ministry began in 1967 and lasted for 50 years. Millions of people attended his crusades, leading him to be dubbed by some as the, quote, Billy Graham of Africa. In 2000, CT sent a reporter to see him in Nigeria, and I'm going to read from this report. Sunday night, Bonnke delivered a sermon on the first chapters of Acts, when the apostles received the Holy Spirit. He then told the audience, Jesus is here with all the fire you will ever need. Raise your voices. Receive the Holy Spirit now. Thousands in the crowd began wailing, screaming, and crying. Frantically waving their hands in the air, many baked loudly for anointing. Bonke gave a similar message on Saturday night to 1.3 million people on the crusade ground. Building momentum with the audience, the evangelist instructed the crowd to begin shouting, Alleluia, until the Holy Spirit entered their bodies. You are going to speak in new tongues, a language you have never learned, he told them. It comes from your heart. Don't be afraid. This is fantastic. Our reporter also commented on some of the miracles that attendees sometimes claimed after seeing him preach. I'm going to read from that part as well. Although occult and other superstitious practices are prominent in Nigeria, many Nigerians came to Bonki's crusades in search of a miracle for health reasons alone. As the evangelist delivered a healing prayer specifically for the sick each night of the crusade, hundreds of people tried to make their way to the platform to profess miracles. A few made it onto the stage to share. Many more, however, were questioned and then turned away. Then we wanted to learn more about Bongi's ministry, how a German evangelist became passionate about Africa, and how his work affected the church on this continent. You're listening to Quick to Listen where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. And I'm Mark Galley, editor-in-chief. All right, Mark, I think this is a good subject to do a gut check on, and I would really just love to hear kind of your initial take on who Reinhard Bunke was. Well, overall, I have to say I I admired him, even though I would have to say that his uh, style of preaching and worship wasn't exactly that of a reserved Anglican. (laughs) The Frozen Chosen. The Frozen Chosen, exactly. I heard him preach once in actually a World Pentecostal Conference in Sweden, and it was very much along these lines. I did meet him in our offices, and we had a conversation to go back and forth on some questions. I thought the way he answered them was intelligent and fair, and so he impressed me as a person who is sincere, goes about his Christian faith and preaching of the Christian faith quite different than I would imagine I would find interesting at all or helpful. I don't know the African scene to know. He obviously was very popular there, so I'm left with a sense of sort of mystery, but also respect. Clearly, not all Germans are reserved, as evidenced by this, right? But it's still a little bit surprising to see someone from this background get extremely passionate about going to a part of the world that is known for being much livelier in that way and just feel a strong sense of God's calling to go there. I know when we talked about this initially, I was like, how is it that I've worked here and I don't know who this guy is. He seems like a really big deal. I later realized when I was doing research for this that I had read some of the coverage that we had in the over the years, but I still don't remember him being a big name during the time that I've been a religion reporter. And I feel like 
there's some major gaps that this podcast is going to address with my own understanding of what's been going on. Part of that has to do with it. His main ministry focuses Africa, and we, we touch on Africa in the magazine, but not that often. Often we're dealing with social and political issues that are arising there. But at a grassroots level, Bonke was huge, absolutely huge, and it's well worth our while to understand more about him. So who's our guest today? Our guest is Nimi Wariboko. He is the Walter G. Mulder Professor of Social Ethics at Boston University School of Theology. Among his scholarly interests are economic ethics, Christian social ethics, African social traditions, philosophical theology, and Pentecostal studies. He's written a number of books, including The Pentecostal Principle, Ethical Methodology in the New Spirit, and Nigerian Pentecostalism. So he's an especially important person for us to have on the show. And welcome, Nimi. Yes, thank you for having me on the show. It's great to have you here. So are you in Boston right now then? Yes, I'm in Boston. And how many years have you lived over there? Actually, I've lived in Boston for about two and a half years now. Okay. Have you become a Boston sports fan during that time? That is a dangerous question to ask for, <laughs> for somebody who came from New York. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so I, guess, uh, I don't want to offend either the Boston group or the New York group. I spent 17 years as a student and worked in, in New York City. So you always have that tension okay. between New York and Boston. Yeah. Better, better left unsaid then. <laughs> well, it's great to have you here, Nimi. And I think maybe we should just start this show by getting a sense of who Bonky was. And so maybe my first question for you is, when did you first become familiar with him? I became familiar with Bonky. I started to hear about him about 84, when he had a very, I mean, that's the beginning of this, his massive crusade. In 84, when he had a he could say that I had a in Zimbabwe where about he invited 4,000 evangelists from 44 different countries in Africa. And they had this big Kent crusade. And it was in the news. And Kenneth Copeland at that point had paid for the tent by giving him $1 million. That was a big money in 1984. And, and so a lot of people spoke. One of the most popular preachers then in Nigeria, uh, Reverend, who later became Archbishop, in Daosa, Benson Daosa, was the only African that, that spoke. And, and, and so he was already big. So that brought attention to Bunker because Reverend Edausa was also first major tell evangelist in Nigeria and who kind of spread the gospel also across West Africa and Africa. So two of them combining doing something that was big. So I think that was the first time I got to know about Ranha Bunker because I, I think I was in I think in my final year in college or so at that time. Did you attend the crusade as well? No, I was in Nigeria, and Harare was at least uh, probably six hours, seven hours flight away. Harare is in, in Zimbabwe, is about Southern Africa, Southern, and I'm, I was in West Africa. So um, even if I wanted to attend uh, as a student, I couldn't have afford, I couldn't afford the flight ticket going there. Essentially, you heard of him in this context of this like, massive event that he was going to pull off. You had mentioned Kenneth Copeland to Mark, if I am saying this correctly, he's a relatively famous televangelist. Yes, and. Uh pretty much very much associated with the prosperity gospel in the States, for sure. And you also had mentioned to Nimi that Bonke was going to be on stage with the person who became Nigeria's first televangelist as well? Yes, Bishop Benson Edahosa. So he was on the show. And Bonke did something. He invited, according to the report then, about 4,000 evangelists from 44 different African countries. So it was like a major, even though it was happening in, in Zimbabwe, it was a major continental event. 
because people came from all over Africa just to congregate there. And he pulled it off. So it was thousands and thousands of people attended, yeah. And, and it was when he was talking about Save Africa as a team. So, so, so the team was Saving Africa and, uh, so, and, and the start of his fire conferences, yes. Maybe we should rewind a little bit just so people know how he was able to pull off this massive event in Zimbabwe that you're talking about. You know, I think that we said in our intro that he started his ministry in 1967. And I'm curious, what do you know, Nimi, about how he kind of got his start preaching in Africa? One thing, also, as I become a scholar, there's also interesting about Bunker that people don't know, but if scholars will get a thrill from it, right? He was born in the same town, Conneberg, as in my Kant, the great philosopher. Oh, how about that? An Aryan, the great uh, philosopher, the student of Heidegger, uh, who, who came to, to the U.S. because of Hitler and became very famous political philosopher. So that is a town... Yeah, he was born. And so I think the town was sacked by the Soviets also. So he moved uh, away from that place. So at the age of 10, which is about 1950, 49.50, as he said, he got a call as a child. He got born again. And later he got a call that his ministry was going to be in Africa. And according to his story, he has never seen an Afri- Africa at that time. He had never seen a black person in his life. Wow. But he believed that was, and the woman also gave him the vision that God has spoken to her that he was going to preach. So based on that conviction, he then traveled to the United to the UK to, the, to go to seminary. And he said when he arrived there, for the first time, the first black person he saw on the street, he ran to the person and said, can I take a photograph with you? And he said, he has that, that photograph. <laughs> but he said he was later disappointed that that person wasn't from Africa, from West Indies. <laughs> <laughs> but, but he said it, it was good enough he had met a black person. So by 1967, he was about 27 years old. Two years earlier, he had married his wife, Annie. 27 years, he went to Lesotho in 1967. And he started his ministry, but he could only get five people to come. And he was very frustrated. And then within seven years, he realized that he couldn't do the job he's doing in a small place. He went to Botswana, Gabroni in Botswana, and, and got a stadium. And then the first day or so, 100 people showed up, and the number kept increasing. So by 1984 now, when he blew onto the world stage, or at least the, the Pentecostal world stage in Africa, he has been practicing this for, for seven years, or at least all his life. And the reason he became Pentecostal was also that an American Pentecostal pastor has come to their town and healed his grandfather. And his father became a pastor. And so he was born into a Pentecostal fa- a family, believing in healing and believing in evangelism. So you could see these two things that has been part of his ministry goes back to the American evangelists that came to his town and preached the gospel and also healed his grandfather. And that's how his, his own commitment was made to the gospel of Jesus Christ and also to Africa. And then he moved to Africa in 1967. I think it's important for our listeners to know what was happening on the continent of Africa in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. I I know it's obviously challenging to generalize an entire continent, but maybe you can give our listeners a sense of what was happening with regards to colonization and also the new nations that were being formed. At that point in in Africa, there was a lot of expectation of new things that were going to happen because that was the decade of decolonization, right? So a lot of African countries got in independence. Ghana, 10 years earlier, before we went there, through Nkrumah's got in, in uh, independence. Uh, yeah, also. So there was a lot of hope about Africa going and development uh, prosper. But at the same time, 
In the southern part of Africa, we saw the white minority rule, either in South Africa or in Zimbabwe and all these places. They were tightening the news, and, and apartheid was taking a more deadly turn. It was in the midst of this, on one hand, you have hope of decolonization, of Africans coming on the stage to do something. But at the same time, in the southern part of Africa, things were looking bleak. Of course, also at that time, you also have the Soviet Union and the American empires both try to win Africa socialism or so. So it was a very tumultuous time. It was a time with great expectation, with also with some despair going on. And this was the moment he went in. Important to understand why his ministry would take the kind of turn it took, not only evangelism, but emphasizing healing and emphasizing prosperity. And you could see at that time, not many Africans up till till today, a good number of Africans who have access to good health care. They come to God expecting God to heal them. A preacher that does not recognize that will appear not to meet their needs because you, you are literally having people in front of you who need help. And the least you can do is to turn to your God to say, heal them. That was a high level of poverty. And so when people are talking about prosperity or flourishing, it was something to ameliorate what they were going through. It was not what we have today where the preacher is looking to buy jets and, and all sorts of things. But it was, how will the gospel of Christ not only save people and take them to, to heaven, but at least attend to their material needs to make life a little bearable? And so that was period and the time that his ministry took up. I will confirm that interpretation of Bonke's prosperity gospel, because when he visited our offices, I asked him that specifically. I, I asked, I said, some people could accuse you of preaching a prosperity gospel, and his answer has struck with me ever since. He says, it's it's really easy for you wealthy North Americans to be down on prosperity gospel when you're prospering so much. It doesn't strike me as a bad thing to help the very, very poor to aspire to a life that's not very, very poor. I think that's what he meant by prosperity, not wealth and health, but, well, maybe health, but not riches. Yes. So, Nimi, you had mentioned that during this time, right, a lot of the decolonization efforts are taking place. What do you think it meant to have this European guy come to Africa during that time and try to spread this, you know, his particular understanding of the gospel? In the 60s was when the, the mainline churches, the Anglican, the Presbyterian, other people that were there, they were actually arguing for decolonization of the churches. So they were asking their, their white missionaries and leaders to go back. So it was a period. So if you look at from that point of view, they were asking, look, Africa has come off its own. African can run their own business. Now it's time for the missionaries or the white leaders uh, to go back and leave things out. So that kind of debate was going on in the what they call the mainline churches. But the Pentecostal movement was beginning to take off in, in Africa. And those involved in the movement were open to accepting anybody because the criteria of what they were looking for, anybody who had the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you can demonstrate that you have the anointing of the power of the Holy Spirit, they will accept you whether you are black or you are white or from whatever stuff. The kind of ministry was doing was not involved in that kind of debate. They were open. The Pentecostals at that time were open, hungry for the power of God. And, and he came in, preached that simple message of the gospel, uh, and it made an appeal. And he was not the only person that at, at that time uh, was coming to Africa to preach. Others, people from other continents, um, UK and other from America, were there. 
But one thing that is important that I've listened to even the, some of the tributes that people have given to about him and the way even ministry documentation is put on, there is also, it goes to the heart of the question you, are, you, you, are, you have just asked, right? In, in trying to recognize the contribution of Americans or Europeans to African Christianity, whether African Pentecostalism, people must be careful not to attribute everything to the foreigners that came in. Because that is the language you get, that it was the most important missionary, it was the most important preacher in Africa, that African Pentecostalism, African Christianity is attributable to him. It's true he played a part, but that kind of narrative is wrong, because that's the kind of narrative that has been going on about African Christianity for over 200 years. Colors or uh, Europeans, historians, would always attribute the gains made in Africa to missionaries that came in from outside, forgetting that they couldn't have done it without local help, without massive local help. And that's why I started by telling you in 84, he had 4,000 evangelists, 4,000 Africans came together from 44 countries to make that happen. But if the story is told only for that bunker organized a crusade and that million came in, it's a, it's a wrong narrative has always been a cooperative effort. There is always local agency. There are also local churches that make it happen. We should recognize that. And Africans are not against people coming in and doing something. It's, it's, it's we scholars that when we tell the story from after it has happened, we tend to think that the, the work of God is, is attributable to just one person, a star person. I was an editor of a magazine called Christian History for a while, and after I left it, they, the staff produced an article on African Christianity, and one of the, one of the themes of that article were it, it was not, and in some, in some cases, it was not until the white European and Western missionaries left that the church exploded under the ministry of African preachers. Exactly. That's a very common phenomenon in the formerly what we call the missions world. It's when the Westerners maybe got the thing started, but it really explodes once the message gets down to the indigenous level of what people, you know, the people who actually live there. So, yeah. Yeah, because like if you look at the news on in American media, they keep talking about, yeah, he has 1.6 million, 2.0 million. If you go to Nigeria, Pastor Ia Deboye, the chairman, the head of the Redeemed Christian Church of God worldwide, Every first Friday, we'll have a crusade or a prayer service that millions attend. It's been going on for 20 years. <laughs> every, every first Friday. It's not just like once, 10 times in a year. Every first Friday. And then since 98, 99, 98, he has had the annual three-day event, and 6 to 10 million people will attend. Wow. That dwarfs what this is. So for the press to say that, He's the biggest force. He alone has put Africa on the map in terms of Pentecostalism, in terms of Christianity also. I mean, there's no doubt he was a very blessed man. He did a lot. But we are seeing the narrative going this way of attributing anything to foreigners when always those foreigners will depend on the work of, of the locals and always God has prepared the locals before even that that foreigner arrived. Amen to that, especially. Yes, And that's really important. I'm glad that you gave us some context about the numbers. And and Nimi, I'm curious, what do you think was his unique contribution or maybe unique approach to Africa? What made him different than other different Western preachers that came to Africa in the 20th century? First thing that will strike you about Reinhard Bonke is that you see that Immediately you see him and the way he relates to Afri- Africans and the way he works, that he believes in Africa and he loves Africa and he loves Africans. He's not, he's not coming in as a visitor. He's not, he's not coming in 
with the mentality that I'm a savior coming in on a white horse. He believes in that, even though the people who have just put up, his organization just put up a, a documentary about, about him, and, they, and I felt they, they missed something by presenting him as a, as a white horse. If you look at what they call the legacy of harvest that they just put out, it, it was surprising that they portray him as a pharaoh, along the line of the pharaohs, the great president, the big <laughs> men in Africa. I mean, I just think, why would they do that? You know, they started the story by talking about, even if pharaohs are even, they're not Christians. They started the story about Africans are pharaohs and, and, the, and the great president, uh, Jumbo Kenta and Nelson Mandela and, and all what? the idea, I mean, and they put him in that league as if he's one of those. And I said, no, that's not what the guy is about. Whoever that did that video just came out on their side, the man never portrayed himself as one of these white guys coming on a white horse to, with a savior mentality to save Africa. But the people that put the video, tracing him and linking him, his greatness up to the pharaohs. <laughs> that is not um that's uh, funny wow that's funny you know but they don't, they don't look at the sensitivity of that but somehow there was a redemptive value in the video they were very careful to say how it depended on local evangelists africans that that will uh, really help him so yeah his legacy you see that but when sometimes some of these other bigger Pentecostal name come to Africa or something, you see that they are coming with their huge ego and reputation. But he never came across in that way. He was really interested. And he never pretended that God had called him to the whole world, even though occasionally he would do crusades other part of the world. But his focus was on Africa and he never lost, lost that side. I was talking to my wife last night and I said, that guy is consistent from 1967 till he died. He had one vision, Africa, Africa must be saved. And he lived it and he pursued it till the day he died. That kind of dedication is important because often you find Christian leaders, once they succeeded in one place, they want to go on to create empires in other places. But he never lost sight of his focus on Africa. I'm curious, are you aware of any controversies that occurred during his years in ministry? Yeah, some controversies and yeah. One one thing that I will mention, like in '99, he had um, a crusade in Benin, Benin City in Nigeria, and 16 people died in a stampede. Couldn't have planned it better, you know. Having handled millions and for 16 people to lose their lives, and then I think in '91 there was also riot in in Kano. He, he had come up with a team that he had tearing down the strong strongholds of Islam. And they went to the Islamic Center in Nigeria, the Northern Pad, and had a large uh, crusade, and people gave their life. And so he was then going to do that in the city close by Kano. And there were riot properties were destroyed. People died. And then in 1994, he wanted to come back, and they canceled it again. So, and, and so some would say, but it's not a common sense that he was not always aware, not sensitive to the religious tension in Nigeria about Islam and Muslim coexisting. And sometimes doing things in their face would cause some of this thing or so. And then people also talk about his claim about resurrection, raising people, or some miracles, right? But that, if people don't believe in miracles, they don't believe in some of these things, then you cannot convince them, and they will always doubt his claim. On, on the academic level, yes, people will doubt those kinds of uh, claims that there were really healings or genuine healings 
that were taking place. But but those are kind of controversies that have bedeviled Pentecostalism as a whole. The question is, are, are those miracles real? Apart from that, it was not obviously flamboyant as the rest of, of the Pente- big Pentecostal preachers. The closest thing I know, some newspapers said he was living in a house, what Florida or somewhere, what a couple of millions. But but compared to what some Nigerian uh, <laughs> that have two jets and <laughs> <laughs> live in other, uh, in, in other places. And I said, well, two million might be a, a big deal, but in, in America, if somebody can pay a mortgage of five, six, seven thousand or, or so, you may live in a, in a house close to that. I mean, I'm not trying to let them have the hook, but people say, well, um, if you're really following Christ, do you need to live that way? And, and I cannot confirm that is actually the way he lived. But the issue of uh, stampede and riot, better organization, and sometimes aware that if you are dealing in a pluralistic society, how do you recognize that in the way you take the gospel people from other faiths? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We've talked a lot about his love for Africa overall, but I'm wondering, Nimi, if you can tell us maybe three or four countries that were particularly special to him and why that was. Nigeria was special to him. I mean, for obvious reason, you can get big those massive crowd of having a crusade and having six million people, as you said, um, over three days or so. So, and Nigeria was very vibrant, so and had several big cities. So, so Nigeria was important to him. Uh, South Africa was important to him because he started his ministry in Lesotho, and Lesotho is surrounded on all sides by South Africa. It's a landlocked country within South Africa. And uh, so South Africa important to him, and Zimbabwe in that area, especially where he had this 1984 uh, big crusade that launched him to the consciousness of African Pentecostals. Yeah, so, so those countries were very important. I mean, he was so important in Nigeria that, I mean, he came to Nigeria so often that everybody in Nigeria, it became a household name. So it's not surprising that when he died, the president of Nigeria, who is a Muslim, have to issue a note to say it's a loss to Nigeria, Africa and the world. Because that's how he, he, he has become a household name. So President Muhammad Buhari saying that it's a recognition as a president that his country's Christian value this God. And in the moment of loss and grief, he wanted to reach out uh, to them. And there's also something there in the sense that Bunker preached a simple gospel message of taking people to Christ, taking people to God. And, and so Buhari could recognize that, that look, I may, I may be from a different religion. I'm, I'm a Muslim. He, he, he's a Christian. But he preached a simple message about God. And, and if I believe in God, then I should re, 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 recognize that in him. And I think that would be behind what Buera has done. Because it's not an election year. You see, he's saying that to win votes. No, this is not an election year. Election happened earlier this year. But his recognition of the role the man has played in the lives of Nigeria, in helping Nigerian Christianity to grow, but I think that the president made that statement. I'm curious also about the fact that over the course of Bonke's ministry, 
we have this like larger sense of Pentecostalism in Africa also kind of maturing and growing up at the same time. To what extent do you think Bonke influenced it? And to what extent do you think he was influenced by it? Any, anywhere Christianity you, you go in, you always step into something. And to the extent that you step into it, um, you influence it and it influence you. So, so he was definitely crucial in the development of African Pentecostalism in the last 50 years. There is no way anybody writing about the history of Christianity in Africa, especially Pentecostalism, will write him out. I mean, you may disagree with his ways. You may have something to quarrel with him. You may not like his Pentecostalism, but you cannot, he played it a great role in fostering the growth of African Pentecostalism. Particularly, when I step back and I look at his ministry and what he has done, and I think five areas come to my mind, and I think that's going to be his lasting legacy, not so much the crowd, the crowd size, but there are things that he did that are quietly influencing people and will continue to do so. And I'll, I'll just mention five of them. The, the thing about uh, Reverend Bonke is that he was not interested in building his own church or denomination, but working for the kingdom of God. This is very important because all the majority of the big names in African Pentecostalism are always interested in creating their own church or their own denomination. So when they're having a crusade somewhere, they're there is to direct people to their church or to open a, a branch of their church there. But his point was to, to bring people to Christ and direct them to the local churches to be disciplined. So his focus was on the kingdom of God. That is a very important thing to recognize about the man. Number two, he was interested in evangelism, just preaching the simple gospel of Christ. And recently in Africa, a lot of people are not just preaching that. They will preach a lot of prosperity gospel, or a lot of uh, self-empowerment and, and so many things that they would say. But he was interested in the simple message. That's why some people will call him the Billy Graham of Africa. That simple message. And, and it's very important as Christians that we recognize that. And then the, the third thing I would say that based on his focus on evangelism, he had inspired a lot of people to yearn to save souls to work with the Holy Spirit to, to save souls for the kingdom of God. Because his brief saying or motto was always, I want to depopulate the kingdom of Satan and populate the kingdom of God. And, and that is very important because I believe that if Christianity loses its edge and its urge for evangelism, its edge and its urge for winning, raising the next generations of Christians, bringing people into the kingdom of Christ, sharing the gospel, it will die naturally. And no matter the big programs, the self-help program we have, the empires or the political fights that we have, or even electing people as presidents or governors or so, if attention is not paid to evangelism, one way to kill Christianity is to tell Christians that evangelism is unimportant. I think he revived the yearning for evangelism. He made a good number of people to realize that evangelism is important, is fun, and he can do it with joy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is the, the third thing that I would say. Then the fourth thing also, that, which is also very important, he had a succession plan. And this is, I've given interviews on television also. One problem with African Pentecostal movement is that the big men and the women, the leaders don't have succession plan. So when they die, their ministry is, is either falling apart or it goes to their wife or their children. But he picked David Colander, somebody who was working for him, to be while he was alive. When he made that move a couple of years ago, I was very happy. While he was alive, he appointed a successor. You cannot say that about the Pentecostal movement, a good number of the uh, churches in the Pentecostal movement. There is no obvious plan for secession. So doing that is very important. And also, finally, because of the love of 
Christ, he left Germany, went to Africa. He was he was ready to pay the price of a relocation or, or dislocating himself or displacing himself from his own place and moving elsewhere and to do the work of God. That he believed that the work of missionary, the work of missions still needs to be done. And, and he did it in that simple way. And I think so. this is going to be the legacy because any number that people are talking, one million or so, we don't know what God is going to do. Somebody could come and preach tomorrow and you have two million. So, so we cannot really make this comparison in terms of numbers alone. And we cannot really know how much of that people get disciplined as Christians, right? As Christ followers. We don't really know. No one can really say, because a, a worker, an unknown preacher in one church, may be trying to bring 100 people to Christ every year, might end up winning more souls of disciplined people who really live a Christian life more than these millions we are seeing. We don't know if all of them become good Christians that we, we can never know, even though they will fill the, the decision card. It's not. But a local pastor in a small church tending to 100 people, 200 people. Perhaps in heaven when they meet, we find out that, oh, I, I have 200 people. And the guy who had millions come to crusade might not even have uh, maybe a, a thousand Christians that 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 walk the walk and stayed with the faith. So we don't really know that. That's why it's dangerous to make comparison or assess somebody's value purely on quantitative numbers. But the qualitative things he did, focusing Christians on not building their own denomination or their own power base, but on, on the key kingdom of God, joyfully preaching the gospel of, of Christ, inspiring others to do the same thing, telling people that you have to create a succession plan, because as long as Christ tarries, this gospel, preaching of the gospel and Christianity will go on, and we need to make plans for the future, and we need to dedicate ourselves to it. That is a lasting legacy that we can pass on from generation to generation, and I think that's what Christianity has been about. Thank you so much for giving us, I think, a really good overview of both his impact while he was alive and also what his legacy will be. It was also really helpful in helping us, I think, understand another dimension of African Pentecostalism as well. For people who have feedback for us on the show, you can send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. You can also go on Twitter. We are at CT Podcasts. I want to remind everyone this podcast is made possible by people who support the Ministry of Christianity Today magazine. You can do that by going to morect.com slash podcasts. And we always like to give you a sense of what we also do besides record this podcast. Some of it is by going to board meetings where Mark was recently honored for his time and service at CT. Did you have fun at your honoring farewell party? Yes, I don't know if quick to listen listeners are aware that I'm retiring as of January 3rd. So this is my last month with quick to listen, last month with Morgan in this capacity, unless she invites me on as a guest on maybe how to retire in this in the spirit or something. I don't know what. Yeah, so the board honored me, which was very nice. Where'd they take you out to dinner? An Italian restaurant in Pasadena, whose name is slipping my mind right now. People said some nice things about me that weren't true, but I appreciated them anyway. But I'm sure... <laughs> <laughs> Just so that they really got on your good side. They said some mean things to you, too. Exactly. Tease me about this, that, and the other thing. Exactly. Which is really what feels appreciative. So, I haven't had a, a large experience of board, but I've talked with people who have had a large experience of boards. And apparently the CT board is one of the more healthy boards on the planet today. Just a good camaraderie, not a, not a lot of infighting, po- politicking, arm wrestling for power or whatever. It's very a collegial group, supportive group. Part of the board meeting is given over to sharing with one another the challenges and joy of their life. They pray for one another. 
just a very, very good group of people, and we're in a very good place. Because in CT's history, to be frank, there have been times when the board has been less than healthy, and but now it's very healthy. So it has been for some years, thanks to the leadership of Harold Smith. Very cool. If you would like to support our ministry, that again, that's possible by going to morect.com slash podcast, morect.com slash podcast. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, and everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy recently. Mark? I'm going to prophesy. Uh, uh, wow. <laughs> Let's hear it. I think my moment of joy will be coming in about a half an hour. Yeah? We're going to have a staff Christmas party at a local restaurant, and that's always one of the highlights of the year for me, just to spend some time with the staff. We have a casual dress policy, but I've asked everyone to do business casual, up their game a little bit, so it'll be nice to see everybody dressed nicely at a nice restaurant, and I think we're going to have a great time. That's awesome. I agree. It's going to be a very fun time at lunch. And there's a lot of people wearing red sweaters in the hall. Exactly. Probably noticed. <laughs> Where can people find you? I publish something called the Galley Report, G-A-L-L-I Report, which can be found at ChristianityToday.com slash the Galley Report. I link to articles, comment, sometimes get a little preachy, but we have about 23,000 subscribers and they seem to enjoy it. You might as well. Mimi, go ahead. My joy is that, I mean, throughout this week or so, I mean, maybe a couple of days early, I get this overwhelming joy waking up that knowing that I'm accepted by Christ. I, it's not every time you get that feeling, but you get the joy that God is with me all the time and that no matter what I do, I've been accepted by Christ, by God, because just Christ had died for me, had called me to be by side. That is my moment of joy. And I just feel that anything that I do in this world, even my scholarly work, or when people call me to, to share the word or do whatever I can, it's actually a gift of God. And, it, and, and it's, not my, it's not by myself. That in this period of going to Christmas, for the fact that I would renew that joy, I mean, it's, 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 it's a moment of pleasure. And you told us that you are headed to Nigeria tomorrow? Yes, I'm, I'm headed to Nigeria, yes. How long are you going to be there for? I'm going to be there for a month or so, yeah, with family. What are the Nigerian Christian, or sorry, the Nigerian Christmas traditions? Oh, it's actually a very celebrated one. You know, people exchange gifts. Uh, you, you see people that uh, you, 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 you've not seen. When we are small, that's when your parents will buy you your best dress and shoes and, and everything. So, so it's a very joyful. There's a lot of eating. There's like like the uh, Christmas. It's it's the way Americans celebrate Thanksgiving. It's it's like the way it eats. It's uh, joy. Families get together. They eat and 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 they relax. And everything slows down. Churches will have programs. And um, in the Pentecostal cycle, between the Christmas and the New Year, people will go on evangelism, going from place to place to share the word of God. And so people are generally nicer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So, 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 so it's a time of joy. Do you want to remind people of some of the names of your books? I've written a, a couple of books on, on Pentecostalism. So I have, uh, the one is called The Pentecostal Principle. I'm trying to understand what moves Pentecostalism and how that could affect the way we do ethics, because I'm a social ethicist. I also have a book on Nigerian Pentecostalism, trying to understand why the movement is vibrant, what they do, their thinking, their ethics, and that is Nigerian Pentecostalism. So those two books, uh, people can uh, easily find them and other books on Amazon. Do you have a website or are you on social media? Yes, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. My Twitter is at Nimiwari. I'm, I'm on Twitter, but I'm not on uh, Instagram. If they go to Boston University School of Theology, there's also a website for 
for me as a faculty, so so they can also reach me through there. I would think that our our, radio, our listeners might know, might have only a vague familiarity with Boston University School of Theology, but they they should be aware that some of its more famous graduates include Catherine Gonzalez and. Carl F.H. Henry, one of the early editors of CT, and, of course, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. So it's a school with a tremendous legacy. Yes. Yeah, thank you. I didn't know the Carl Henry reference. Cool. All right. My precious moment is a tour that I went on yesterday. In Chicago, we have a extremely beautiful theater called Auditorium Theater. And yesterday was the 130th birthday of the theater. And so they had a giant cheesecake so I got free cheesecake, which I love cheesecake. And then you'd go on a tour of the theater. This is a place that I have seen the Joffrey Ballet perform on a number of occasions, as well as been to a concert or a conference. I've been to a conference there and some other things. And it's just gorgeous. So it was really fun to learn some of the backstory behind how the theater works and operates. Unfortunately, we could not go into the dressing rooms, which are underneath the stage, because they're currently in production of The Nutcracker right now. But I really love theaters and i hope next time i go i can go on the stage because that would be very awesome people can find me on twitter i'm at m-e-p-a-y-n-l that is it for us this week thank you everyone for listening to another episode of quick to listen this podcast is produced by myself and also by matt lindor Umi Ashola does our transcripts. You can find this podcast wherever you get your podcasts on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. If you end up heading to Apple Podcasts to get this podcast, please rate and review the show as well. It really means a lot and it helps people find us as well. Slash podcasts. And we will see you all next week. Bye. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.